1: That's BlueNile.com. The Guardian.
2: Coming out of the garage, it's an automobile on its way to a hangar to become an airplane. Demonstrated by its inventor, Dr. Waldo Waterman at Santa Monica, California. Wings are needed to fly, and here's where it gets them. Just drop in at
0: the hangar... Any time technology throws up a new problem for society, you're guaranteed to see someone say, we were promised flying cars. Instead, we got this.
3: A
1: flying coupe.
0: But flying cars are here. Rolls-Royce has designed a propulsion system for a flying taxi, which could apparently become reality as soon as 2020. Larry Page, known for co-founding Google, has backed several projects for the development of flying cars, including one that won't require a pilot's license to operate. And in July 2018, a Dutch company called Pal V showcased what it calls the first ever flying car already fit for purpose at the Farnborough Air Show in the southeast of England. But why do we need flying cars in our lives? We already have airplanes and helicopters. Why add more traffic to our skies? Uh,
2: we had a meeting uh, last week with the flying doctors, yeah, which makes uh, a flying car very special because the doctors who are flying into uh, real different different countries uh, uh, fly at, at, at difficult uh, uh, circumstances. But also from police departments and and coastal guards and so on. There's a lot of uh, uh, interest already.
0: Flying cars are the archetypal science fiction-made reality. Fifty years ago, they were restricted to books, films and cartoons. Now, an entire industry is forming around the idea of a future in which individuals could have their own personal flying car parked on their driveway, equally ready to take to the road or the sky. So do we thank the likes of Back to the Future or Futurama for inspiring today's technologists? Or should we blame the science fiction for distracting us with expensive and unnecessary gadgets when we should be focusing our attention and resources on solving real problems?
3: I would just, you know, again, remind people that we can work on climate change and we can work on a Mars base and we can work on, you know, getting rid of this income inequality. We can do that all at the same time.
0: I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips with Everything.
1: The perfect way to start an air show. The Red Arrow's just sum of 200 military and civil planes displaying today at Farnborough.
2: Hello, this is Marco speaking.
0: Hi, Marco, this is Jordan from The Guardian. Hello, Jordan. At this year's Farnborough Air Show, companies like Boeing and Airbus showcased their latest designs for the future of air travel.
2: Well, today, of course, in Farnborough, we are presenting our uh, flying car, the first world's uh, flying car. And, uh...
0: Marco van is the chief commercial officer of, and a demo pilot for, PAL-V, which is currently exhibiting a flying car called the PAL-V Liberty to the rest of the industry and potential customers. Oh, I'm
2: fine, I'm uh, sitting here uh, at a...
0: Uh... We gave him a call during a busy day at the Farnborough Air Show.
2: Well, it's it's great. It's for us the first uh, flight uh, show we're doing. Yeah? We introduced our model at the Geneva Car Show yeah. as a car which can fly. And today, uh, of course, it's, uh, it's a plane that can drive. <laughs> it's just the way you look at it. Uh,
0: for... If you look at the PAL-V Liberty on the official website, it looks a bit like a stretched out bulky red car with big black rotor blades that fold in around the back and sides of the vehicle. Despite their best efforts, it's not particularly pretty. With those blades up, it looks a bit like a warped helicopter. So, what sets a flying car apart?
2: Okay, the difference between a helicopter and a gyrocopter, a flying car in this case, is that a helicopter has a engine which uh, uh, operates the rotor system, uh, and a gyrocopter only has a propeller behind. And because of his speed, then we have a free floating, uh, uh, a free floating rotor system which is much easier to fly and much cheaper to fly also. The operational cost of a gyrocopter is like three times less than operating a helicopter. So, the great thing of having a flying car is that normally with a helicopter also you, can, you always need to fly from one airport to another airport because most of the times you're not allowed to land in the city. And with a flying car it's just possible to land just before the city, do the transformation in three minutes and just drive in the city and you have full mobility with you.
0: So you're painting this, this kind of wonderful futuristic idea of increased mobility for people with these personal flying cars. You know, you can choose to go on the road or in the air, but how far can a flying car actually go? What's the limit there?
2: A flying car, it, it flies and drives on normal gasoline, normal car gasoline. So uh, we have a 100-litre tank and we can fly 500 kilometres with it and we can drive 1,300 kilometres with it. So...
0: In other words, the PAL V Liberty can travel from Amsterdam, where the company is based, to somewhere as far away as Paris or London. I immediately predicted that airlines would have a problem with this possibility. But Marco doesn't foresee any rivalries just yet.
2: Of course, it's not a very cheap car. Uh, because of its speed, it has an airspeed of around 160 kilometres an hour. It's great to fly, uh, let's say, this four or 500 kilometres, but when it's longer, like a 1,000 kilometres, we always say it's better to, uh, to use the airliners.
0: You said there that flying cars are obviously still quite expensive. Who is buying them? Who are they for? Is it just for rich people?
2: Well, at this moment, of course, uh, there are quite some uh, people with, with a good wallet. Our limited edition, this is the first editions, will cost €499,000. After that, we will come with a Liberty Sport. It's going to cost around €299,000. We have a lot of uh, car people who are really involved with, with the car industry who are buying it uh, uh, now. And there's a lot of people who always had this small seed of James Bond or becoming a pilot in, in their heart and now taking the step to say, OK, this is my, this is my moment of making, uh, making the dream come true to become a pilot.
0: So would you say a lot of people then have been in actually interested in buying these flying cars? You said they were hundreds of thousands of euros. Are people actually buying them?
2: Yeah, at this moment we already sold uh, uh, more than 40 uh, pieces out of it and there's a lot of uh, interest also from the professional environment. Like uh, we had a meeting uh, last week with the flying doctors, yeah, which makes uh, a flying car very special because the doctors who are flying into uh, real different, different countries uh, uh, fly at, at difficult uh, uh, circumstances. But they can drive then and they can fly, we only need 0 to 30 meters to have a landing. And we need a strip of 200 meters to take off. So you, you only need very small airports or smelly, very small strips to, uh, to fly a uh, pulpy, which makes it a very, very uh, uh, good to also work in a professional environment. But also from police departments and, and coastal guards and so on, there's a lot of uh, uh, interest already. The yearning for flight is one of man's oldest dreams. It entranced Leonardo da Vinci in the year 1500. Inspired the Wright brothers five centuries later, and is still more prevalent today. Introduced to the mechanics of flight in a classroom, these fledgling pilots are learning to fly at their own expense. Some...
0: If someone buys one of these cars, do they have to have a pilot's license? Do they have to show that to you?
2: Yes, what you need, of course, if you buy one, you need a driver's license, but also you need a flying license. It's called a BPL. So what we did as a company, we also created what we call the PAL-V Fly Drive Academy, which is a flight school where you will get your private pilot license. And what we did besides that, that we also created what we call boot camp in some different exotic areas. So that's part of our product at this moment.
0: The PAL-V Liberty was developed adhering to existing aircraft legislation, which makes me wonder whether you can really call it a car. But one thing it does have in common with the traditional car is, as Marco mentioned earlier, it is fueled by petrol. What about the environmental impact? So you talked about companies making electric flying vehicles. Do you know what the environmental impact of a flying car is, maybe compared to uh, just a road car?
2: Well, at this moment we are in the same emission as a normal road car, but looking at the future today, it's not possible to fly with batteries because the amount of energy, which is uh, 37 times less than in a a liter gasoline, uh, if you look at the energy level. So, the more and the better the battery will come, then also in our roadmap, there's a step that we also will create an electronic version, but it's going to take a few years that the battery industry is as far as they can build batteries who are good and powerful enough for that.
0: So flying cars are obviously straight out of science fiction, and later on in the show we're actually going to talk about the influence that science fiction has on technology. Have you got any favourite examples yourself of technology that's clearly inspired by sci-fi books and movies?
2: Yeah, well, when you, when you look at technology, of course, one of our uh, inspirations was, of course, uh, Back to the Future. We're always looking at the programs like that.
0: After the break, we'll look into just how much influence science fiction has had on the real world and whether or not our determination to bring to life things that we've seen in films is detrimental to efforts to deal with more pressing problems we're currently facing.
3: I think there's, there's a lot of nostalgia involved and we want those things because they make us feel better. We're seeing a lot of 1980s nostalgia as well with things like Stranger Things and, you know, everyone wants a DeLorean. And it's, it's like, it's not because that's practical, it's because it makes us feel good. It's nostalgic.
0: Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. happiness means something different to all of us maybe it's the contentment of sitting by the fire with a loved one that warm fuzzy feeling after a night in with your friends or laughing hysterically at your mate's idiocy we all have an understanding of what it is to be happy but what does science say about happiness and the brain?
1: I think it would be nigh on impossible to take a snapshot of the brain any one time and say, this is what happiness looks like. For example I use is like showing a picture of a carrot and the bit of the brain lights up and you say, oh, that's the carrot centre of the brain because that bit of lit up, you show them a carrot. It, it, it isn't ever that simple, that straightforward.
0: And is there a dark side to happiness?
3: that pursuit of happiness in and of itself if we try too hard may actually backfire and set us up to be less happy and even at increased risk for symptoms of depression and other mood disorders
0: join me nicola davis for science weekly just search for science weekly in your favorite podcast app or head over to theguardian.com forward slash Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan-Erika Weber. Before the break, we heard from Marco Vandenbosch, Bosch, a demo pilot for the Dutch flying car company, PAL-V. He illustrated a future in which, once the price goes down from a staggering 499,000 euro, flying cars will be widely accessible and will free up traffic on roads, moving it to the sky. But where did this widespread idea of personal airborne vehicles come from? Robert H. Goddard, who built the world's first liquid fuel rocket in 1926, became interested in space after reading The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. An early pioneer in the development of submarines, a man called Simon Lake, was apparently inspired by Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and received a letter from the author congratulating him for his work. Even the mobile phone, according to Martin Cooper, who invented the first one, was inspired by the communicator in Star Trek. So why are we so obsessed with making sci-fi a reality?
3: My parents actually would bring home videos, you know, the old school, you know, VCR tapes of Mad Max type apocalyptic science fiction shows. And I enjoyed them immensely. Uh, Of course, what I really wanted was to see myself more in the the male hero role. So those ended up being sort of the sorts of uh, books that I ended up writing.
0: Cameron Hurley is an award-winning author of science fiction and fantasy and columnist for multiple publications.
3: Science fiction for me was really the place where I could explore how things could be really different. To me, science fiction does the greatest thing that traveling does for us, which is that it picks us up out of our existing culture and puts us into someplace new so that we can actually start to interrogate all the things that we think are normal. And, oh, well, this is just how the world is. It can't be any different. And I think that's what the best sorts of science fiction achieve is they allow us to think, what is it to be human? Are we at the pinnacle, right, of human civilization? capitalism is the only way Uh, in fact what we see with science fiction and again traveling is that these aren't the only ways to be that human beings have have been and could be many different ways how technology can change us uh, for better or worse and uh, that's what I think that uh, the best of the genre really does in this show, we've been looking at uh,
0: a kind of a quintessential science fiction technology, the flying car. So early on, we talked to Marco from Pal V, which is a company that is showcasing their new flying car. And um, I saw an essay that you wrote called Our Dystopia, Imagining More Hopeful Futures. And you wrote in that essay, if I hear one more person pine after a flying car, I'll tell them they should have built it. The utopia of flying cars and space colonies isn't the future we've built. Do you think that flying cars are this image that represent an idealized utopia? And and why is that?
3: I think they represent a very specific kind of future. And that is a 1950s American, really. I think that it's it's a it was kind of like exported. Um, so American and uh, and even a UK uh, future. It's a very specific colonial type of future. It's funny. It represents what we thought the future would look like in that particular time. Every science fiction is a reflection on its present moment, right? And it's very much similar. Uh, again, with uh, you know the 1950s and and all these, we you know, the cars were everything.
2: The colorful new hood emblem proudly symbolizes 21. Years Years of public preference, just as the hood ornament with its swept-back jet aircraft wings symbolizes smooth, powerful performance.
3: I look at it now, and what we're finding, again, is we need to find much more renewable resources. We need to find better ways to get people uh, here and there with solar, with uh, other sorts of technologies. And cars are, you know, again, they're, they're hugely inefficient Is you're not carrying around that many people. Uh, and I think that we're looking at futures where we, there's going to be simply more of us, and we're going to need to start to uh, kind of think outside of that particular futures box.
0: Given that this idea of flying cars does come from, you know, decades ago now, why do you think people are still pining for them? Why do people keep saying this? Oh, we were promised flying cars and this is what we got instead. Why the focus on this one thing?
3: It's absolutely nostalgia. Uh, I talk a lot to people about uh, our present moment, and they always say, oh, but it was so much simpler in the past. And I think, well, no, it wasn't simpler in the past. It's just that we were younger, and we didn't understand as much about how the world actually worked. Uh, And there is that thing where I say, you know, uh, we have this this 1950s future, and they say, I was promised jetpacks and flying cars. And I said, well, I grew up in the 1980s. I was promised a cyberpunk dystopia. (laughs) And I'm like, that's kind of what I got. So when we look back it seems like it is uh, again a better a better era we're seeing a lot of 1980s nostalgia as well with things like stranger things um, Ernest Cline's uh, books which are a love letter basically to 80s pop culture uh, or science fiction culture and you know everyone wants a DeLorean and it's it's like it's not because that's practical it's because it makes us feel good it's nostalgic
0: So should we blame writers like Cameron for inspiring us to pine for these technologies? And is it necessarily a bad thing that their stories have encouraged us to do so?
3: Yeah, but I also think that, you know, science fiction doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's like, yeah, we can say those ideas come from us, but I would also say that those ideas come from us interacting with the world and talking to other people. What would it be useful to have? Um, How awesome would it be? If we can't imagine a future, we can't build it. And so what science fiction does is it helps us to imagine different kinds of futures. And this is why I talk about more hopeful futures because I say, well, there was a lot of 80s dystopian cyberpunk futures and wow, look at the future I'm in. So I say, why don't we show people other futures that are more hopeful, more equal, more interesting because that's the only way that we're going to be able to create it is to encourage people to imagine it.
0: Is there some risk that obsessing with things from science fiction like flying cars and Mars bases is a waste of people's time? Does it maybe even risk distracting people and resources even from more important issues that we're facing, like climate change, for instance?
3: I would just, you know, again, remind people that we can work on climate change and we can work on a Mars base and we can work on, you know, getting rid of this income inequality. We can do that all at the same time. And I think that there's this sort of either or thinking where they say, well, we can either go to space or we can fix things here. And I was like, no, we can fix things here and we can go to space. In fact, fixing things here is probably going to be what is more likely to get us to go into space, at least a space that is actually owned by people and not by corporations, which is what we're starting to see now. And I think that some of it as well is that we need to start goal setting and say, first we do this and then we do this and then we do this. This, while acknowledging that we're working on those, we're working on all those same goals at the same time. They're just all interconnected.
0: Science fiction has obviously influenced our reality. But as Cameron points out, what's going on in the world today shapes how she writes her stories. So what comes
3: first, the
0: science fiction or the reality? I think it's both. I
3: know, it's just kind of cop out. But I do think it's both. I think that, again, we are reflecting a lot of our present time uh, which again why you see so much dystopia coming out of the 80s but then we also project yeah we project that onto uh, future generations who then then grew up with that which is actually one of the reasons why I talk about hey let's really start looking at creating a hopeful future where we've eliminated some of these problems instead of perpetuating them I think there's a lot of things that we need to, you know, work on with uh, looking at the social ramifications of some of these technologies, Uh, and that's why I actually look a little bit further ahead, because I think that I'm not necessarily going to see what future comes out of the generations reading my science fiction right now, but I would like it to be a more hopeful future. I would like them to grow up thinking that, again, things can be really different, that they can build something that is not a cyberpunk dystopia. It's certainly a little bit of both, and that's what I keep in mind when I do my writing.
0: We're sticking with science fiction for our interesting tech fact this week, with news that sci-fi writer Neddy Okorafor is working on a Marvel comic all about the Black Panther's little sister, the tech-obsessed genius Shuri. According to Bustle, the new series will be available from October 2018, and we'll see Shuri forced to lead Wakanda in her brother's absence. The story is sure to be full of futuristic technologies to yearn for. I'd like to thank Marco Vandenbosch and Cameron Hurley for joining me this week. You can find a link to the PAL V Liberty flying car and to Cameron's many books on this week's episode description on the Guardian website. As always, you can send me an email at chipspodcast at theguardian.com with any questions or ideas you might have. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening.